Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, and Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to everybody. Hope you're enjoying being warm and cozy and welcoming in a new year. And I thought as a little present for Christmas slash New Year's whatever... I would release one of our Patreon exclusive episodes. This was one of the first episodes we did on Patreon. It is an album deep dive into Taylor Swift's reputation with Rolling Stone's Britney Spanos. I'm so proud of the work that we're doing on this Patreon, and I hope that you enjoy listening to this episode. And if you do, and you want more shit like this, join us over there at Pop Pantheon All Access. You can subscribe at patreon.com slash poppantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode and otherwise just enjoy this episode happy new year look forward to seeing you guys in 2023 okay i'm here once again with the fabulous Brittany spanos of rolling stone Brittany, welcome back to the show thank you so much for having me happy midnight's week to you <laughs> and to you as well. <laughs> I, I, I think we have slightly divergent opinions on the album, but, uh, but oh yeah, I'm struggling a little bit with it. It's one of the first Taylor albums I think I've ever been with that is not fully clicking for me on listen number yeah. fifteen or wherever I'm at with it. Like I'm really into specific yeah. songs on it. Like I think Antihero is like top top shelf Taylor single like yeah obsessed. great single finally picked the right single and that actually is relevant to our conversation today I think <laughs> the thing is I don't think that people would have liked anti-hero very much if it were released as a single oh yeah agree though. I think obviously the rollout strategy has been flawless because she's putting up some serious yeah. numbers on the board this week so she did a good job of that I guess I'm adjusting to the idea of Taylor releasing a mood piece <laughs> like I think that there's a way in which this album like in the middle of it just feels a little like murky and less vivid than I'm used to from her and yeah maybe that's what it is maybe it will click for me at a certain point but I haven't quite gotten there yet but I love anti-hero love karma like there's a few songs that have really jumped out at me but I know yeah. that I'm in the minority. I know that you're you're more in the majority over here. And I really did love your review. I mean, the thing is that I'm not like a hard sell on a Taylor album generally. Like I'm in it typically like pretty, like usually by the second listen, I'm pretty much in an album. Lover was that for me at first where it was mm. sort of like a while for me because it's that album's so disjointed. Yes. <laughs> it almost feels like a, a part two to the album we're going to talk about today. But like it's, you know, yeah. that one felt very disjointed for me. And now I'm surprised that the album has become like maybe one of my most listened to Taylor albums. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, Midnight's, I liked how cohesive the sound was. I loved some of, like, the wackier lyrics on there. I just, like, was yeah. so excited that she was back <laughs> to doing pop music again. And mm -hmm. I liked, for the, the nerdier side of me, like, I loved sort of piecing together references to other Taylor songs and other Taylor right, of themes. So that part was, like, really fun for me. So that kind of makes the album, like, the gift that keeps on giving while I listen to it. It's fan service in that way. Like, she's definitely, like, giving a lot to the Swifties to, like, work with, which I think is yeah. part of the fun of being a Taylor fan is, like, piecing together all the puzzle pieces. But I'm actually, you know, we committed to doing this episode before, I think, either of us. I know you heard Midnight's before the majority of people did. Yeah. But I think before either of us had heard it. Yeah. And it was an astute choice, I think, as a look back album mm -hmm. for us to be because I think that there's a lot that this record is doing that I think is fulfilling some of the promise of reputation in a weird way and yeah I'll be interested to talk about this with you because there's so much fun things to dig into about reputation in terms of like how it was received in the moment yeah. and how hard to call an album that debuted with 1.2 million records like a flop but it did feel in the moment mm -hmm. like it was one of her least successful or least well-received projects to that point, or maybe the most obviously least well-received project to that point, which like, again, hilarious to say about an album that led off with a huge lead number one single and then debuted with over a million copies. But yeah. am I wrong to characterize that? Do you feel like at that moment in 2017 when Reputation came oh, out, like, yeah. that was seen as kind of her flop era? Right? I mean, this is the thing about Taylor, and I'm saying this more as I'm always in like a weird place because I am like a huge fan of hers, but I also right. like am... Um, Critic. I work as a journalist. I work as a critic. I also like am like teaching a class. So it's like from an academic right. standpoint. Sure. The thing with Taylor is that I, I feel like people don't realize the bias that they have in terms of like they really want to hate the thing that comes. From. I feel like the majority of Taylor listeners are like ready to kind of like have like a certain idea of what's mm. going to happen. 
And mm-hmm. I think a lot of reviews of Reputation, an album that I really love, an album mm-hmm. I was not expecting to love as much as I did because the singles mm-hmm. were a little misleading to me. I mean. <laughs> but once I, the, that album I was sold on the very first listen, like the very first mm-hmm. time I listened to that album all the way through, I was like, this is not the album I expected it to be. And then the singles made like a little bit more sense and I've grown to like really love. There's like maybe like two songs on the album I, I skip every time I listen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think like a lot of reviews didn't take into account what the actual album ended up being about. Like so right. much of the reviews were, right. were right. focused on the Kanye stuff. So much of the reviews mm-hmm. were focused on the politics stuff. None of that was what the album was. And totally. like the reviews did not match the album that we were hearing. And it felt like mm-hmm. it was sort of like a pre-write almost of like a review for a lot of... <laughs> I, and I, But I think some of that was her own doing because of the way she... Fr- I mean, the title yeah. in and of itself, the lead single, were very red herringy in a weird way. Yes. And before we get into the details, let's set up kind of like where we were in 2017. So yeah. obviously Taylor had moved from country pop icon, darling, child, star-ish, where she had started out through her first four records into the biggest pop star on earth with the album preceding this, which was, of course, 2014's 1989, which was obviously a pivot for her as she framed it herself, going full, pure pop, her first album that was not gesturing towards country at all. And the album was ostensibly like an homage to kind of shimmering... 80s aesthetics and synth pop vibes, right? Yeah. You got that jeans. worked a lot with Max Martin on that album. The two main collaborators she had on that record go on to produce the majority of Reputation, which are Mm -hmm. Max Martin, who she had worked with before on Red, and Jack Antonoff, who was new to 1989, a new collaborator for Taylor, and was kind of his big break as a producer. He produced, of course, Out of the Woods, which has proven, as I think a a lot of us have mentioned about Midnight's, to be a hugely influential song in the Taylor canon. Mm -hmm. This sort of skeletal Antonoff 80s synth pop aesthetic is something that she reutilized on Reputation, on Lover, and now again on Midnight. It was still, though, in the mode of Taylor as she had been, I feel like, to that point, i.e. it was shimmering, it was bright, it had a feeling of sort of youthful hope about romance and love, and even if she was scorned in various moments, it always had the patina of, like, the fairy tale romance that had defined kind of, like, the earlier part of Taylor's discography, right? Like, so, 1989, I feel like, was a very shrewd pivot into pop in that it retained a lot of, like, the essential nature of Taylor Swift, but just sort of, like, re-established the sort of aesthetic perimeters of what she was doing. Do you feel like that's a correct characterization? Kind of. I feel like Welcome to New York sort of, like, presents it as, like this kind of bright-eyed sort of like yeah. thing but I, I find a lot of the lyrics on there a little bit darker than it's a very mm. robin-esque i find the lyrics to be like mm. this sort of like harried kind of breakup set moment right. where it's like right like the way that she's written about romance and breakups over the course of the albums is like red sort of being the turning point of her writing about the fairy tale sort of being destroyed and like right being like absolutely dismembered by this relationship <laughs> breaking down whereas right. like by 1989 she has a little bit more of control over like, her emotions with it like she's a little bit mm. like i can be bad too like it's a very bad sandy <laughs> type of moment yeah. um yeah and i find that the lyrics in a very robin way is like very dark like all you have to do is say style like there's still like a little bit of darkness to them like there's mm-hmm. no fairy tale except for the one song about jack Antonoff and Leah dunham's relationship and that's about <laughs> it like every single song has like some sort of like tinge of post lana del rey robin Mm. moment very 2010s that sort of shimmeriness with like a little bit of like a i like bad boys and i'm fine Mm. with that but there was still a shimmeriness to the sound of it yes the sound is so much more shimmery than anything her breakup songs before like she on the album previous we have like the snark of we are never getting back together we have the absolute dour ballad of all too well like you know she usually matches the tone of the lyrics to whatever she was doing and i mean with guitar like that's kind of like intertwined with like how you're supposed to do 
do that. But with this, she's doing, yeah, like that dance pop shimmering mm-hmm. sound that doesn't totally match the actual kind of like dark. Which is very Robin, very Robin. Yeah. Dancing on my own shimmers while also being like a deeply sad song. Yeah. So I think maybe my point that would be more accurately than what I said earlier is that I just remember feeling like with 1989, like she nailed the pop transition. Like yeah. it was a move that was like risky taking her out of the sort of sound that she had inhabited or had begun to shift out of with Red and like felt like a huge step forward in developing her out of sort of what she had been into this new version of Taylor Swift's pop megastardom. Yeah. Like it was just enough of the old thing that you could just kind of move along with the journey. And I just, yeah. the reason I want to set that up is because that's part of the reason I wonder about Reputation's reception when it came out. It was a even harder slam pivot and that was part of what the problem was. Yeah. So basically that, as we know, 1989 is a massive success, has three number one singles and a couple more top tens wins Grammy for album of the year. It's like an apex moment for Taylor Swift's like first kind of run. And she then takes three years off between 1989 and reputation. And in the midst of that, a, backlash of sorts does begin to like foment in public imagination around her like what what was that exactly about yeah i mean because of you know she has this presentation as this like huge pop star like she's that career high an all-time career high at this point and was only on an upward trajectory in her career at that yeah. point And, you know, she's very overexposed. (laughs) And she says it in the infamous phone call. Peak squad Taylor era. She knew it, too. She said it in the infamous phone call with Kanye. Like, she knew she was very overexposed. She was very all over. It was the continued piecing together of the relationship. Who's it about? I mean, of course, this is like peak One Direction and like Harry Styles mm-hmm. is really famous mm-hmm. so the songs being about him makes that an added dose of fun and like Calvin Harris is like this is peak EDM like mm-hmm. Calvin Harris is huge she starts dating him the squad she's hanging That's out That's crazy with- actually when I think back on it like the Calvin I Harris mean, We all date DJs that. when we're 25 like you know like we all do it <laughs> like, it all Not happens. me I know better I mean, you're, Yeah you know you know firsthand. <laughs> we all date some shitty bro when we're 25 like Calvin Relatable. Harris We all Calvin Harris <laughs> Did you watch the like viral clip that circulated recently where Lena Dunham was like oh, asked on Watch What Happens Live? An absolute <laughs> beautiful clip that yeah. like I mean the added dose of Andy Cohen being John Mayer's best friend, Maggie Gyllenhaal sitting next to her. Perfection. Lena Dunham, we have a special question from your pal and former girls co-star, Andrew Rannells. Look right here. <laughs> Lena, who has been your least favorite of Taylor Swift's boyfriends. I will point out, of course, that you are seated next to the sister of one of Taylor Swift's former boyfriends, so choose your gentleman carefully. My least favorite of Taylor's boyfriends, and I want to do right by her on this question, and I'm also proud because I haven't pled the fifth on any of these. you haven't. And I think that makes me some kind of champion. Um, <laughs> my least favorite was uh, Calvin Harris because I felt that he was petty in the public and who needs to do that? Calvin Harris. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. She's hanging out with the most famous people of the time. She's hanging out with, yeah. I mean, Lena Dunham, of course. She's hanging out with Cara Delevingne. She's hanging out with Kendall mm-hmm. Jenner. She's hanging out with Carly mm-hmm. Kloss. Like, she's literally mm-hmm. only hanging out with, like, really famous people. And mm-hmm. she's surrounding herself with hot women constantly and is on stage with them, at parties with mm-hmm. them. She has her squad. And, I mean, it's just kind of like the presentation is very ostentatious. Like, she has these big yes. parties. She does all these things. Mm-hmm. And she has, like, the big tour. So the tour ends early 2016 or something. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. she has, like, this massive tour. Of course, all of her album rollouts at that time went on for two years because there was always yes. a big tour that follows. Right. You know, it's, and then the Grammys. It kind it's of a very trod and true kind of, like, cycle. Yeah. And of course, because she's at the apex of her fame and of being a celebrity and of being like the most talked about well-known person, this Mm -hmm. is prime time for her and Kanye, who was at the apex of his celebrity, married to Kim Kardashian, having, you know, the immense success of Yeezus over the last couple of years leading up to Life of Pablo. This Mm -hmm. is just like a prime time for Kanye as well. Mm-hmm. Before, you know, everything else. <laughs> but it's a really prime time for him at this moment where they are both at their most famous. And of course, they mm-hmm. reunite and they are like a few that no one had talked about for years, mind you. Right. It feels like it's been talked about every single year. But like people forget that we did not talk about this for. Except she constantly made it a part of her sort of milieu. No, I not mean, really. she was. Uh- 
Really? No, she did not talk about it again until after the downfall of it. Oh, okay. So, so like, there was the song on Speak Now that was they about both, him. Basically, right? they they had that moment. People, you know, asked her about it. She kind of tried to move on from it. People's focus mm-hmm. was the boyfriend stuff. Right. She did not talk about Kanye again after she did her song and he did his song. They had their okay. songs. Okay. And that was it. So there there was dormant. Yeah. Because okay. everyone thought yeah. Mean was about him, but Mean was about someone else. Like, th- there's but the there's song. another song on there about Innocent him, right? Innocent is about him. Yeah, Innocent. But that wasn't Innocent, a single. Right. They yeah. just performed at the VMAs. He did Let's Have a Toast to the Douchebags. He'd run away at the VMAs. Right. We moved on. We had moved on right. for about five years at this point. <laughs> I had certainly moved on. <laughs> yeah. I, I, like our, our the Mandela effect is the idea that this was an ongoing thing. Okay, so that's mythology. It I was see. That's mythology. It was over. Mm-hmm. No one had talked about it. But it was kind of, you know, it was like a funny thing that had happened at this point. It was like a yes. VH1, like top 20 moments and an award show moment. Yeah. Yeah. Yo, Taylor. I, I'm really happy for you. I'm let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. Neither of them had seemed to care about it, really. Right. Until they reunite 2015 VMAs. Mm-hmm. And there's also a bunch of other stuff. She has the feud with Katy Perry at this time because of bad blood. <laughs> she feuds with Nicki Minaj at this time. She, like, inserts herself into Nicki Minaj's anger about the VMAs. Right. And they reunite yeah. the VMAs. Oh, yeah. Such right. a messy experience all over. For right. The... Right. She's very... She was stepping in it a bunch of times. She was stepping way. in it a lot. Yeah. And so, of course, the Kanye thing, this is like good PR for both of them, right? Like, this is right. a good moment. It's a good VMA sort of moment. She presents him with the Video Vanguard Award. Yes. I first met Kanye West six years ago at this show, actually. Since then, we've had a lot of time to talk about a lot of different things. Um, it seemed like everyone in the world knew about our infamous encounter at the VMAs. But... Something that you may not know is that Kanye West's album, College Dropout, was the very first album that my brother and I ever bought on iTunes when I was 12 years old. And so right. they kind of have that. And then we're about to enter what should be Taylor minor break of like her easing away. But of course, she's still super famous. She does still a right. lot of events, right. all of that. And of course... The longest break she's ever taken so far between albums. Yeah. And she probably would have come back in, like, 2016 with an album or Mm -hmm. something. Like, you know, if she was going on the same thing. But, of course, like, she has the Grammys. And leading up to that is when Kanye and her enter their feud again. Just a few months after their (laughs) reunion, they enter the feud again. So Life of Pablo, which is, I mean, when we talk about messy album rollouts, it does not get messier. The apex of messy album rollouts. Yeah, a constantly evolving album. So with Life of Pablo, of course, again, Kanye is at his most talked about. He's basically in his, like like full pop star era. Taylor mm-hmm. is kind of like leading up to the Grammys that she's about to win for 1989. Mm-hmm. He releases the album. There's a lyric on Famous that is, I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex. Why I made that bitch famous. I made that bitch mm-hmm. famous. For my South Side niggas that know me best. I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex. Why I made that bitch famous. God damn. I made that bitch famous. This begins what I think is the greatest miscommunication in music that's ever happened (laughs) in life. Like, it's like almost comical when you read back on everything that happened and you're like, I feel like my brain hurts whenever I think about it. And like, trying to explain this in the Taylor class, like, I was just like, I feel insane trying to like... (laughs) like to explain this because we all have a different idea of what happened and it's so stupid essentially taylor was upset and she put out a comment about it i forget what the exact press release was but she had said something she's upset about it and she made a comment at the grammys about it and as the first woman to win album of the year at the grammys twice i want to say to all the young women out there There are going to be people along the way who will try to undercut your success or take credit for your accomplishments or your fame. But if you just focus on the work and you don't let those people sidetrack you, someday when you get where you're going, you'll look around and you will know that it was you and the people who love you who put you there. And that will be the greatest feeling in the world. Thank you. At this point, Kanye is like, she approved the lyric. She Taylor says she did not approve the lyric. Kanye said she did approve the lyric. They are talking about two different lyrics. They don't mm-hmm. realize that they're talking about two different lyrics. But they oh. are talking about two different lyrics. Kanye. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. They are talking about two different lyrics. So everyone thought that Taylor was going to be mad about the, I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex. Taylor was mad about the, I made that bitch famous. Oh, I see. I see. I see. Right. Okay. 
there's months that go on basically, but there's kind of like a little bit of a back and forth in the press. Taylor's kind of talking about it a little bit. Kim and Kanye are still talking about it. Kanye goes on a rant at SNL about it. He's like talking about it constantly. He's pissed that she's like making such a big deal out of this and claiming that she did not approve this. And he's standing by the fact that he had gotten approval from her. Mm-hmm. Like everything's still fine. She starts saying Tom Hiddleston. You know, she bleaches her hair. Her British era really Her was. British era popped off. Like, you know, she's deep in the UK at this point. So and she's still there. She was have, there last night performing Exile. She sure was. That's <laughs> written by her British boyfriend. <laughs> With her British boyfriend. So basically there's like a one-two punch that happens in July. I hate like knowing this all by memory. There's <laughs> no, a one-two so punch that I'm happens like, go July. off. <laughs> so July 4th, the infamous 4th of July party at Taylor's yes. house. Oh, and of God, course, I remember it well. Tom's wearing like the I Heart TS shirt. It's like a really like a bad look. Like it's such like, a PR stunty moment. <laughs> We're in full like cultural sickness about Taylor Swift's yes, we general are at this point, MO at this point. <laughs> exhausted. We are so yeah. exhausted and we yeah. hate it. But like, yeah. you know, because it's like we have three of the most famous people on earth talking about this constantly. We have Taylor, yeah. Kim, and Kanye yeah. talking about this situation constantly. And we're all like, we need to move on. Yeah, By like this nobody point, cares as much as they do. No one cares. By this point, yeah. Kanye's also released the famous videos that's super controversial, where it's like a bunch of naked mannequins. Taylor's right. one of them. Donald Trump, like Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. whatever. It's a lot of mess going on. <laughs> yeah. So then a week later, this happened God, literally a week after all of the 4th this, of like, July. I'm like, oh, I remember God, it really all too well. Was. This, this yeah. really was like too the much. The messiest, the cruel summer. <laughs> the week after that, literally as soon as after that 4th of July mess, Kim goes to Snapchat, oh, Snapchat. God. And mm-hmm. releases videos that indicate that Taylor had approved the I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex love. Right. For all my South Side niggas that know me best, I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex. Oh, well, this this one is, uh, I think this is a really cool thing to have. Uh, thing to have. Uh, I know, definitely. it's like a compliment. Yeah. Kind of. yeah. What I give a fuck about is just you as a person and as a friend. I want things that That's make sweet. you feel good. I don't want to do rap that makes people feel bad. Um, yeah, I mean, what, don't whatever line better. It's obviously very tongue-in-cheek either way. And I really appreciate you telling me about it. That's really nice. Oh, yeah. I feel I just have a responsibility to you as a friend, you know. And, uh, I mean, thanks for, uh, I mean, thanks for being, like, so cool about it. So this is when everything goes loose. Everyone mm-hmm. starts putting snake emojis on Taylor's mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Everyone's pissed at her. Everyone's like, Kanye was right. She was crying victim and she was doing all the other things. This is like peak white womanhood. And a lot of Taylor things are a lo- peak white womanhood, but we'll right. get to the rest of this later. But like huge underlying racial tension in this c- entire exchange. I mean, yeah. like Kanye's career almost ended because of the VMA interruption. Right. People really pissed at him for it. Mm-hmm. And this kind of sets off like a whole new thing. And Taylor, she doesn't go like full silent, but she goes kind of silent basically she there's a little bit of like a lack of as taylor. silent as taylor can get <laughs> yeah like she basically locks out like she's right. like she is not the taylor that we had seen before always online always at events like she'd gone to some events at this point like she was really kind of away from it all mm-hmm. and then the election happens late 2016 and mm-hmm. this is a very contentious election as we know and mm-hmm. we you know i feel like fan culture stand culture was starting to demand more from celebrities in general right. in ways that they have right. not in previous right. election cycles right and really wanted people to speak out but of course taylor comes from the era of people like beyonce did or like that like you know mm. katie perry had previously like she and katie perry sort of had like a, an awakening of her own for better or for worse before her next <laughs> album <laughs> like speaking out her third and, eye opened <laughs> and she came from country music like post dixie right. tricks like she had been basically right. trained to not speak out on her politics mm-hmm. So she mm-hmm. stayed silent. And I think there was a perception at the time that Taylor's bottom line was the dominating force in a lot of like her choices. Like she was always going for the most maximally successful move. And so commenting on the political situation just felt like that could affect her bottom line. That was remember yeah. how I perceived yes. some of the criticisms around her not talking about it at the election was like Taylor would never want to alienate a single fan, potentially. I, I think that's extremely true, but I don't think that's dissimilar from any other artist. No, for sure. But yeah. I think because she's the biggest, 
biggest and most yes, influential. Yes, yes. And I think because people perceived potentially because she came from country mm-hmm. that she could have an impact that on people. That was the biggest part. That it might need yeah. it. You know what I mean? More so than like Lady Gaga. Like is obviously all of the little monsters are, you know, yeah. on board with whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And like, I, I think there was this idea because she had never really, she had said like she voted for Obama like years ago, but that was kind of like, she wasn't like out there rallying for him. Like she wasn't doing much. Like her political stance, it was not formed publicly. And so people did mm-hmm. not know. And because she was so silent and stayed away from it, people had no idea where she stood. She had her big, you know, she had the big 4th of July parties. That's a little <laughs> too patriotic. She's blonde hair, blue eyes right. from the, you know, she's from Pennsylvania, right. but like whatever. Yes. <laughs> she associates herself with Southern culture and right. country music. Like totally. that comes off one way. And because totally. of her silence came off as her being maybe secretly right wing, secretly MAGA, whatever. And that sets off a whole new cycle. That starts a, right. a whole new thing of people being angry. Yeah. And of course, then Kanye comes out as Trump supporter, which is like throwing everyone for a loop. <laughs> you know, it's like everything's happening. God, and then, are we living this, Brittany? I forgot so much of this. I'm just like, oh I my wish God. I, could. I wish I could. <laughs> <laughs> I like this, would love she had to. a lot going on. Like it actually kind of makes the conceit of the album make more sense as you lay this out. I'm glad that we're doing this. Yeah. And I mean, she's pretty much silent. She's silent for the next few months. A lot of celebrities start speaking out a lot more. People are kind of drawing their lines. Like they're like, this is where I am. They're exposing yeah. themselves. Right. Either, you know, whatever side they were on. Mm-hmm. It's just like a really I mean, it's a horrid time in American yes. culture. Oh and god, like, it was so bad. <laughs> just really terrible. And everyone's yeah. just scared and upset and like taking out on the need to see someone with a big platform speak out against something. And yeah. because of her silence too, Nazis basically absorbed Taylor at this point. They loved oh, Taylor. Right. You oh, know, they God. were just like, she's our white supremacist queen. Like, it's just like, oh. she's not saying anything, which oh. is a bad strategy. But like, that was her strategy at that point. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that is when we get everything deleted off of Instagram. We get like right. everything deleted off of Twitter. She's not following anyone. She's kind of right. erased most of her social media presence and then right. returns with a snake. Oh. And that's how we get to like what you made me do. <laughs> and that's 2017. So we're almost a year past the 2016 election. Right. So it was fall 2017. My recollection of this was laying in bed in my Clinton Hill apartment and everyone was on Twitter like awaiting this yeah. song. And... We had gotten, as you mentioned, like some sense of the visual aesthetic being like, I, mean, I think maybe we had seen the black and white cover image of her that like became Something. the album. I think at least like there are some black and white images. I don't think we knew yeah. the name of the album yet, but we maybe definitely not. had seen a snake. Like I know she yeah. had done like a big sort of like Instagram blackout and like did like yeah. a snake image on it. So she drops the single, Look What You Made Me Do, which is like a huge sonic pivot away from everything that she had done before it felt like it's like this very spare dissonant minor chord electro pop dance-esque kind of yeah. song i mean i don't even know exactly how to describe the song look what you made me do look what you made me do look what you just made me do look what you just made me look what you made me do look what you made me do what you just made me do look what you just made me do and i just remember being like oh no I instantaneously despise this song. I think it is like incredibly <laughs> ugly to listen to. Yeah. And I also hate the pose that she's striking. I just remember feeling like her caring more about how she's perceived and her commenting on the nar- meta narrative than anybody else does. Like, yeah. it's like, it felt self important to me from the minute that I heard it, on top of just being a really ugly sounding song. Is that what was your reaction to it at first? I don't remember having like a particularly strong feeling about it. Like, I remember being like vaguely disappointed that the song wasn't better because yeah. I kind of liked Electro Clash kind of vibe. Like, mm-hmm. like I love the Right Said Fred sample that yeah. we now have done to right. death and we really need right. to put a ban on. <laughs> I remember not really being totally sold and that's why I was kind of expecting. I was like, oh, like if this is the Taylor album that I hate, I need yeah. to just be ready for that. Like I need to that be ready. That was what I, I felt the same way. I was like, I this was is like, gonna, this is it. I was like, I'm, this is the moment where I'm not going to like this record. But I loved the video. The video is one of, and I, and I, listen, I was talking about on our Midnight's episode that came out yesterday. I feel like, and you might disagree with me on this, but I feel like Taylor's videos are largely inessential. Like, I just feel like- She does not have that many good videos. Blank Space is like her best, best video. There's a few videos that have come out maybe that I'm like, okay, like this added something 
to the song. And I don't mean, and I said this on the episode, I don't mean that as a diss to her. I think unlike a lot of her contemporaries, like her music really stands on its own. Yeah. You don't necessarily need the visual component to work. I've never found her to be a particularly like, striking music video artist. And this video was like a very classic, big budget music video in which she sort of renders all of her past eras, like speaking yeah. to each other and like does pop star choreo in a way that she had never done it before. And like, it was just very striking. I don't know if I'm capturing all of the things that happened in this video. I but mean, I, I love I, the I just looks in it. Really like very visually nice. But yeah, like with the videos, with Taylor videos, she's not adding anything to the music video conversation. It's, it's not, not a Beyonce situation. Yeah, she's not like a, she's not a dancer really. She's right. not an actress really. Like the songs are good on their own, like you said. It's really fun when she's poking fun at herself. Like that's why, you know, the Blank Space video is her best one. Yeah, but Blank Space is such a more delicate and fun loving poking fun at herself than this yes. song is. This yeah, song yeah. is so like self-serious in that way. Like this video is very memorable, but I also remember being on top of everything I just said about the song. Like I was thinking about this yesterday and I talked to, again, I mentioned this on our Midnight's episode. I was just like, I think Taylor succeeded as a maximalist pop star almost like in spite of her limitations in that arena. Yeah. Like she's so talented that she was able to overcome the fact that she kind of lacks some of the skill set that a traditional mainstream pop star needs. You mentioned it. The dancing, yeah. the sort of like sexy lasciviousness that a lot of mainstream pop stars sort of trade in. It's not yeah. really her, her strong suit. Like Taylor's yeah. more comfortably Taylor, like sitting with the guitar in the long pond sessions for folklore. Like that's yeah. like Taylor in her natural state. So to me... I always found, even on like the 1989 tour, which I saw, there's a certain awkwardness. Like it's the thing that everybody makes fun of. It's all of like the posing and this on the stage yeah. and her trying to convert her Taylor Swiftness into something that's not necessarily her comfort zone, but she's just so tenacious and so talented and the songs yeah. are so good that like she can overcome that. And I felt like when I watched Look What You Made Me Do video and heard the song, I was like, okay, she's reached too far. She doesn't have the ability to pull off this type of video and this type of song in terms of like, I yeah. don't like her doing this kind of aggressive choreo. It's awkward looking and feeling. And her trying to make this kind of, as you said, like electro clash song, which like on its face could be a cool idea. It's not gelling. It's awkward sounding and I'm not buying it. In the yeah. And that was the first time that that had happened for me yeah. with Taylor. I think the funniest part about the song in that I was so meh about it. Like, it was just sort of yeah. like, okay, well, like, I really hope the album doesn't sound like this. And I hope it's not an album about Kanye. Like, I am over yeah. this. Right. That but was like, the thing. I was like, if this album is fucking 15 songs about Kanye, like, even if the songs are good, I'm going to get really exhausted yeah. by that. But, like, I have a, a younger sister and she's 20 years younger than me. She's a baby. Like, she was very, very young. This came oh, out. wow. Loved this song. <laughs> loved it and like so many little kids loved this song this is like oh, a, interesting this is catnip for small children well because it has a little bit of a playground taunty vibe to it and it's the same thing with me the same thing with shake it off and i think right. it's like my big brain theory on taylor and her singles <laughs> is that they are meant to be little kid bait to like no. get younger right. fans like that's right. like how that's how she keeps getting fans who like are such a wide range of ages we well, stick around because of the deep cuts but you get like right. a 10 year old hearing look yep. what you made me do for the first time well she's only machiavellian because she they're cares thrilled. Brittany. yeah like it's like that <laughs> but i'll like, tell you like, this i mean shake it off is potentially my least favorite song on 1989 oh, i hate shake it off i hate shake it off i hate look what I, you made me do i hate I, me i hate me i mean it really did seem like a trend in the big pop album era that yeah. she was like producing these kind of larky childlike singles yeah. but i also think she was very absorbed in the idea that like a pop album comes forth with a statement lead single like she cares you know, she cares about she, doing well she, she wants a number one single but i don't know that that was a successful strategy with this album or with lover like with shake it off obviously it worked but i do yeah. think both of these albums had to dig themselves out of two lead singles that were like, and I mean Reputation Lover, had to dig themselves out of two yeah. lead singles that really incorrectly framed the album. And like, yeah. you know, she had to kind of come back from that both times. And with Reputation, she did less so. And I feel like Lover, she was able to kind of dig herself out of that more. I think the thing was the first few albums, obviously the single was, I mean, I guess starting with Love Story on Fearless, right? That was right. a very big pop country statement for her for that album. But obviously yeah, the but album fit it, But fit it. in perfectly, was just was yeah, like yeah. totally made sense and was fluid in the track listing as well of the album. Yeah, I think by the time we get to 
Red, right? Like, We Are Never Getting Back Together is a great single, but also very jarring and very different yeah. and like a huge yeah. risk because when you listen to Red, there are like two songs on there that sound like there's like one other yeah, song. The other, the other Max Martin songs. Yeah. And so yeah. Uh, there's three songs. There's three songs total that sound like that. Yeah. And then everything right. else on the album is completely different. It's very totally. guitar driven. Totally. And I mean, it was a huge risk, but it paid off because that song is so good and works so well. And then you have Shake It Off, which that's her biggest song of all time. Like right. it paid like a off. a wedding because- classic. <laughs> wedding classic, like whatever. Yeah. Like it paid off because it at least was a little bit closer to the sound that we're getting on the new album. Totally. It was a big risk, but it was not a song that says anything. Like it says, no. it doesn't say anything. It's like, it's not. And there's so much better songwriting on ATD. Right. It's like it misses like a lot of her trademark. It's one of her most basic songs. Yeah. And I think she's trying to recreate that with both Reputation and Lover and to varying degrees because look what you made me do. That did work. That song was huge. That song was like dominating. It was competing against Bodak Yellow. Here's my question. Here's my question. Was it huge though because people loved it or was it huge because it was coming off of an album like 1989 which was like one of the biggest albums of the decade. Like if she had farted on the song it would have been a number one hit. No yeah. I feel like this is why I was so smart with Midnight's and with Folklore and Evermore too. That only worked because there was controversy. The last album was just too big to fail. Like it was, you know, she she's too big to fail. Like that at that point, right. like you know, it was exactly like, it was always going to work. But I think because she was so invested at that point in her career of being yeah. number one and continuing right. that, that right. if it did anything lower than that, if she left with Delicate, which is I mean, no, that 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 wouldn't have worked. Either. I mean, but like, that, I mean, know. that was the other question I was going to ask you about is like, are there other songs? So it's like before the record came out, she also dropped "Ready for It," which was another huge statement piece song, yeah. and also "Gorgeous." But it's hard to picture yeah. either of those songs having worked better as lead singles. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Either. Like, I think there's like, you know, those songs are so good and such great, great pop songs. But you can't lead with the softer thing, or like, you can't lead with "Cruel Summer." Like on "Lover," there's there was no way that that was going to. I don't know. I think she could have led with Cruel Summer on Lover. I think you do the controversy. You do like the song that's going to be like the really, really big one. You have Hank the Disco's like at the biggest set. They have surprising, like Brendan Urie is like shockingly famous with teenagers. I don't get it. Right. But like, right. you know, like they're making the worst music of their career. <laughs> like it's like, <laughs> like doing really well. Like you lead with that and that gets people talking. They get her head. That was like a Look What You Made Me Do where it's like a big pop yeah. song. Yeah. So Cruel Summer is a lot more deeply personal and I think would have been a little bit of a risk at that time to be a number one single versus Maybe. like me which Maybe. like i don't I know think she me, thought she was i mean creating. at least look what you made me do felt like she swung for something weirder yeah. and like i guess i can like give it respect on that level whereas me i was just like i fucking hate this this yeah. song is just I, hell on wheels like it's so vapid and stupid and such a red herring at least this album also like okay the album is not 15 songs about kanye thank god as we're about to talk about it's it's mm-hmm. not that at all it's actually more correctly framed as an album about the refuge she took in a new romance when she felt like the world was against her right like that feels like more of like the thesis statement of most of this album but I do think at least it kind of introduced you to the sort of darker sonic palette of reputation and sort of like created a window into, okay, this album was going to sound more dissonant and more dark toned than like anything we had ever experienced from her and also be maximalistly pop. And this is the other thing about reputation that I think is important to setting it up. I think there's a lot of narratives that swirl around about how like Taylor for those three albums became very conversant with mainstream pop aesthetics. I don't really see that. Like 1989 to me, yes, it's a huge pop album with massive yeah. pop songs, but it had a very distinct sonic universe that didn't necessarily feel like it was like 100% in communication with the other huge 2014 sounds of pop necessarily. It was that, a traditional yeah. pop album in the sense that it was like nodding at pop styles of the past from the 80s, etc. But it didn't feel like she was like playing in the same playground as, I don't know, Ariana Grande or as whoever the other like emergent Iggy Azalea and Charlie XCX didn't sound like that to me so I think the thing about Reputation that makes it one of the most interesting albums in Taylor's discography is I think it is the only album where she fully and 100% went for what it would sound like if Taylor Swift made contemporarily conversant pop music and almost as a challenge to herself and that's one of the reasons I like it so much is because Mm -hmm. she kind of said what would it sound like to not lose myself and my essential Taylor Swiftness while still dealing with the aesthetics of 
the sounds of pop right now, whether that was dubstep, hip hop, as you said, like kind of dance pop, trop house, as we'll get into, like things like that. And that's one of the more fascinating elements of Reputation to me and why I think it's like one of her most interesting albums. But I think Look What You Made Me Do at least served the purpose of setting that up in some meaningful way. Whereas me just feels like totally red herring for Lover. All right, so Reputation comes out. And as we mentioned, I think we both feel this way. It's largely not what Look What You Made Me Do thematically framed the album as being as sort of like it's called reputation she releases this single that's essentially biting back at kanye i mean she makes direct allusions to him i don't like your tilted stage he has just been on the pablo tour where he was on this stage that notoriously shifted and tilted i don't like your little games don't like your tilted stage the role you made me play the fool no i don't like you the album comes out and what's your reaction to hearing this record coming off of that setup when you first experienced it i immediately love this album like i yeah. on the first listen i was very trying because by that point we had heard i believe ready for it had at least yeah. come out before mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. album came out like which was a ready- song that i initially had a similar reaction to look what you made me do and then eventually came around to like absolutely uh, being obsessed with in the I loved the audacity of Ready for It immediately. Like, I love that big synth opening to it. Right. It almost sounds like a Yeezus song, which was yeah. like one of the things that a lot of people talked about at the time. I was much more invested in that song than I was in Liquid. I was like, this is a pop. Like, this is a really good, solid pop song when you break it down. So that song I was already, it does get me back on board. How do you feel about the rapping? How do you feel about the verse rapping? Uh, can we call it that? <laughs> <laughs> Let's call it some talk singing. <laughs> Okay, Brittany, how do you feel about the talk singing on the verses? It's not great, but I think it's kind of funny. I like when she's like does silly shit. That's why I love the sexy baby line and antihero. Listen, like I love when she does silly stuff. I think part of embracing reputation into your heart is yeah. embracing how some of the awkward fits that some of these contemporary pop motifs kind of are for her are like part of the charm. Like that's sort of the thing about it. It's like, I don't think her rapping, sorry, her talk singing is like embarrassing. Yeah. I actually think it's like better than you might expect it to be because Taylor's like incapable of making something like true. Like, I mean, that's not true. We just talked about me. But I think that I don't find it embarrassing. Let's just put it that way. And you might have thought it could be, but it has such a great hook. I love the hook. If the hook was any less good. If the rest of that song was not as good as it was, yeah. those verses would be extremely awful. And like, I feel like the song works so well as like an entire thing. Like one of those things where I'm just like, it's silly, whatever. Like, I don't like, you know, it's not the entire album, right? Like right. I, it would be much worse if it was like, we heard this across the entire thing. No, 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 no. But, <laughs> but it does contain some of the sonic elements that kind of define yes. the Mac songs on this album, which is that yeah. like, this is taking contemporary electronic pop aesthetics and blowing them out to like the absolute hardest yeah. core that they can possibly be. I mean, there's something very audacious about the sound of that song that I think runs through especially the A side of the album which is defined by these kind of Max Martin humongous bass droppy pop songs yeah and so I was already kind of sold and ready for it before the album came out and so then yeah. when they actually heard the album I was just genuinely shocked at like how different it was because this is like genuinely the first time we have ever gotten love songs across an entire album from Taylor like this is like mm. the very first time in her career that she writes love songs that are not about fantasies or about mm. other people's love Mm-hmm. On, on 1989, oh, the one love song on there was about Lena and Jack. Right, right. R.I.P. Right. And every other album, she wrote a love song about Ethel and Robert Kennedy. She wrote a right. song about like having a crush on the guy from Owl City, having a crush right. on Corey Monteith. Like she was like writing right. songs that were about crushes, that were about fantasies. But she right. had never written a love song that had the same emotional weight as like her breakup songs, or the tape. same level right. of detail, the same level of care, and like kind of emotional tension 
Mm. to her love songs the way she'd ever written her breakup songs and that is the part that blew me away on this album is because for the very first time we were getting the (laughs) inverse of 1989 we're getting the happiest lyrics of taylor's entire career on Mm. like love and relationship and this companionship and the darkest sounding album that she's ever released and like yeah that is the funniest part about it because it's such the inverse or whatever of 1989 where it's like you know these are that's like one of her brightest sounding albums and then we have Mm, these like really slightly sexier for taylor type of lyrics well i mean i i was thinking that like delicate which is obviously like i think one of the most universally adored songs on this album Mm -hmm. which is like i kind of now think back on as like as i mentioned earlier like it's a little bit of a trop housey kind of song a little bit like it's sounds in that vein which was like a huge trend of that particular moment but that's one of the only times taylor has sounded convincingly sort of sexy in a you know that's not usually taylor's strong suit like you know style is sexy there's a few times where dress obviously on this record is another moment where she sort of like leans into sex and leads with her sort of sex sexiness but delicate is one of the few times where you kind of get like that intimate feeling of like oh this is the first night that she's gonna like fuck this guy is it cool that I said all that? Is it too soon to do this yet? Cause I know that it's And I think the other thing that's really interesting that you're making me think of, because I had never framed it that way, that this is her first sort of like full on love album but this is now the first of what has become five albums about one relationship so like for the girl that got pegged early on as like hey i date so many people and like you sort through my albums and try to figure out like which song is about which of the you know 20 guys that you that i've publicly dated whatever this album really is an album about the beginning of a relationship that's now gone on for what six or seven years between yeah. her and Joe and like that is the meat of this album like that mm-hmm. is the meat of the album and I think what you're saying about the dissonance between the sort of darker toned production aesthetics and the brighter lyrics is that kind of like feeds what I think as I mentioned earlier is sort of the thesis of this album which is that mm-hmm. this love this new love protected her from sort of like the darkness that was enveloping her from the outside so like in yeah. a way the production choices represent to me the feeling feelings of the world and judgment of other people sort of encroaching upon her and the sort of as you said sort of the sweetness of the lyrics represent the sort of little candle in the darkness that I guess this relationship was for her in this time where she clearly felt under siege by the world if that makes sense my reputation's never been worse you must love me for me like that <laughs> the is the thesis like, of this album yeah. that is the thesis statement of this album listen for the best my reputation's never been worse so you must like me for me you know, it's kind of funny with Midnight's too, like, it seems like it's something that has continued to be like a, a sort of obsession with, like, how she talks about their totally. relationship. Is like, totally. You know, lover. Yeah, like when she says, I'm a, I've been under scrutiny, you handle it beautifully as a reputation yeah. lyric. And, like, Lover, so much of Lover is about the same thing. Like, Cruel mm-hmm. Summer is, like, her detailing this 2016 summer of them getting this relationship off the ground at a point where she's, like, has to kind of live in secret, and it's, like, one of the, like, the darkest moments in her life. It's, like, a, a topic that comes up across all of these albums when she talks about love and about Joe and about like the relationship is so much about the fact that they were able to grow and create this while she's not well received or liked she's like the most unpopular she had been in public Mm -hmm. opinion at that point Mm -hmm. and like this guy is like well you know like I'm fine with that like (laughs) like, yeah right and and, and, and I'm reminded as you talk about that a really touching scene in the Netflix documentary Mm -hmm. Miss Americana where she basically is like kind of in like a dim lit room in her home and the camera's on her and it's clearly being filmed by Joe and she's singing yes. him Call It What You Want which is one of my favorite beautiful Taylor kind of love songs My ever. castle crumbled overnight My castle crumbled overnight I brought a knife to a gunfight They took the crown but it's alright All the liars are calling me one Nobody's heard from me for months. I'm doing better than I ever was. So much the animating emotional force of this album for me. And I think that she renders it in so many interesting ways. Like I love so many of the motifs that she adopts on this album. Like, first of all, some of my favorite things that happen on here are like, there's a true sense of experimentation that Mm -hmm. sometimes I feel like 
I guess folklore and Evermore have this on some level because that felt like a journey outside of like what we had known her to be to that point. But like this album is very adventurous in terms of how it presents Taylor on record. Like, don't blame me, for instance, is something that's always stuck with uh, me because perfect. It's, it's like a gospel song. It's like yeah. Taylor doing gospel aesthetics, but like laced with dubstep undertones. I really think it's so funny because you could sort of think of that song, Don't Blame Me, the title, as like sort of fitting into the anti-Kanye sort of anti-public narrative song. But that song perfectly encapsulates the bait and switch of reputation, which is And I did something bad too. Right, exactly, which are ultimately (laughs) about how in love she is with this guy. Like that's really what that song is about. It's not about anything to do with her public narrative or her reputation per se. They're ultimately about how fucking horny and in love she is with Joe Al. Yeah, that's just such a funny thing. Like this album does a really effective bait and switch in that way. The first five songs I think are really great. Like the only blip in the first five songs, I think that Drake should have been an Endgame, and this is something I've maintained. Oh my god, yes! I think it was like a fatal flaw to put. I mean, like the future on a Taylor song is just hilarious to me inherently, so I don't mind that at all. I find it funny every time. Honestly, that song works way better than it has any right to work. (laughs) It works. I mean, I love that song, and I just like my biggest disappointment is still like I think Drake would have been killed it real, yeah, like that, that would moment. have been the biggest song of the millennium if we put Drake on that I feel like they would have put together some of the most like insane lyrics anyone's ever yes. heard in yeah. the history of pop music. He would have put like the grossest verse on there and like yeah. I would have eaten it You're up. You're so right. We'd still You're be so hearing right. That would have been so much day. better. And wait, and just made more sense than future. Like the future thing is like a funny lark, but it's like, yeah. it's so obvious that they like share nothing in common. Whereas Drake and Taylor share so much in common. I think, like. yeah, we're still, we're missing a Drake and Taylor collab on, I feel this would have been a moment, but I've always I thought some um, summer games on Scorpion would have been another great opportunity. <sighs> I mean, them. yeah. I think Taylor should have been on Scorpion generally, but like, And then also like Drake could have slid into Delicate as well on a remix, I always thought too. Yeah, I mean, I just, I have a lot of questions about why we had pictures of them together around this era, the golden tattoo, whatever. Okay, just to complete our conversation on the epic first five song run of this album, I think I Did Something Bad is the only song in Taylor's discography that could plausibly have been a Britney song. Imagine Britney doing I Did Something Bad. I think there's actually a couple of songs on here that I think yeah. would have been very good blackout era. Britney yeah. Song. Like, I uh-huh. think Britney could have pulled off like what you made me do. Like, oh, definitely. Oh my God. Actually, Britney would have been better suited. I would have liked a look what you made me do way better as a Britney song. It would have just been funny. It would have yes. been fun and silly. Very like, oh, you you're know, so like, great. Right. You're so I right. think like because of the weightiness of the context of the song, it's not as fun as it could be if someone like Britney Spears had done it. Like, I feel like I Britney agree. would have killed it if she like hearing her. I could hear her. So that's a good point. That's such a good point. Oh, the whole, the whole thing. Yeah. hundred. You're so right. I never thought like, about that. Like doing her little, so like right. little Britney coos on there. Oh, oh my God. That would have been chills. epic. I just yes. got chills, chills thinking about it. I know. I know. I know. Well, I, that you're making me think like there's a version of a Max and Jack Britney album in 2018 or something that yeah. could have happened in different circumstances. I think yeah. that also she gets like some of her best like concept songs off on this record, like mm-hmm. Getaway Car, God Tear Taylor song. I mean, how dare she put a Bruce Springsteen song first off in the Literally. middle of this album? album which is like the funniest part (laughs) 
and a Bruce Springsteen song that also like a is so Taylor because like imagining yeah. herself in like a Bonnie and Clyde crime fantasy. She loves crime fantasies. This is the beginning of an obsession with hers of like casting herself in like various kind of Hollywood. She does it so many times on Midnight's on yeah. Vigilante shit. The line on Antiheroes about like her daughter-in-law killing her and them her staring up from yeah. hell. Whatever. She loves that. But this song is so well done and it has the classic bait and switch Taylor third verse where at the end of it in that country style she sort of comes through and flips the narrative yeah. and ditches the guy and steals the money and takes off into the night. Such a well-written, perfect yeah. Taylor Swift concept song. I'm in a getaway car I left you in the motel bar Put the money in a bag and I stole the keys That was the last time you ever saw me The album is like really just like beautiful and fun. Like there's a good balance of you get these moments like so it goes and you get like yeah. dancing their hands tied, which are just like gay anthem. Sorry, that's her number one gay anthem. Don't we agree? I mean, yeah. Like I think like Opening the- lyric Oh, I loved you in secret, yeah. baby. This is where the Kalers get their meat from. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, this is like the, I mean, this was not the beginning of it, but this album like really like set them <laughs> running. And meanwhile, like over like a drum and bass production, like there's yeah. so many fun experimental motifs and the fact that she pulls them off all so effectively, yeah. they're not all nat- natural fits for Taylor Swift. Like this album displays Taylor Swift's talent and prowess in some ways better than any of her other albums do because she's yeah. so far outside of her comfort zone on so many of these songs. And the fact that they work is like astonishing. It's just like really great storytelling across the entire album. Like, there's like a lot of new sounds, there's a lot of new things, but the stories that she's telling on each song are riveting and fun and different mm-hmm. and like all these different perspectives that we're getting on mm-hmm. this relationship, on being caught in like the in between two people at one, you know, at different points. Yeah. Like there's like a lot of really great storytelling across it that like mm-hmm. she doesn't lose at all. And like mm-hmm. a, a lesser artist would completely lose so true. that. So in, true. In the, the, the mess of these sounds like booming and, like, sonics, right, right. Yeah, right, this right. like goth maximalism that she's doing. Like it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, goth maximalism is. <laughs> <laughs> a great description of this album. but like we don't lose any of it at all like we're getting a song like gorgeous that's like really yeah. bubbly and fun mm-hmm. The one song that feels tonally different to me, I have to say, like, Gorgeous is the yeah. one song that I feel like slightly loses the tonal consistency. Yeah. And is the one song that I think directly gestures back at 1989. It's the yes. only song on this record that, like, would have made yeah. sense in on 1989, including right down to the ding replacing the pen click of Blank Space. You know what I'm saying? I got a blank space, baby. And I'll write your name. I think is like the biggest thread to Midnight's too. I feel like Bejeweled mm. and Karma sound questions sound so much like that, like bubbly little little mm-hmm. synth sound on Gorgeous. But you know, like you know, like you're but you're not losing the storytelling on that at all. Like she is so good at giving like really great narrative in these songs instead of like you know she'll give you that great hook, but she'll also really give you a story to sink your teeth into that's yeah. like fun and interesting to like pick apart and to put pieces together. Like I, I think that's like the really great part about this album. And I think you know again like what I think a lot of people immediately did here right because they were so distracted by look what you made me do I, yeah. I truly and and maybe ready for it you know, I truly believe that these singles did no service to this album at the end of the day to the way it was perceived took the single conversation like there are so many songs on here that if you gave them to any artist right now like it would be immediate number number one right like any yeah, pop right. artist would be able right. to like make these number one like these are just really great pop songs this is they Max are. Martin this is Taylor Swift who is like the greatest songwriter of her generation and yes. Jack Antonoff who's at the top of his game during this album like yes agree any artist would kill it with these like if you I agree and it's sad that the world didn't get to experience them because of the way that the album rollout happened I feel like we we missed the opportunity for some of these to really be smashes yeah and I I think the thing is like looking at any number of them like you know if we led with gorgeous this sort of like this like idea that she's still kind of like post 1989 or if we led with ready for it the essential problem was that she wasn't speaking at all she didn't do any interviews for this album she didn't Mm -hmm. do anything she Mm -hmm. like was completely absent in a way she's never been for an album cycle Mm -hmm. and so The only option was to address the Kanye stuff with a song. And that was the entire thing. No one would get if she led with like, I did something bad. 
that. Right. Like, you know, like people be like, okay, but like, let's talk about the lack of presence during the election and let's talk about mm-hmm. Kanye. Like, mm-hmm. she was in a tough spot. She was in a tough spot in how to sort of like present yeah. herself rolling into this kind of. And, you know, it was messy. Like, I don't think this was her best album rollout at all. Like, I think that yeah. she should have done no. something. I think she should have said more. I, I get the conceit of trying this out, but yeah. I think now in hindsight, it's like, I guess that's the only thing she could do if she wasn't going to do an interview or going to do like a. Um, yeah, I see so what you're sort saying. of there is no other option, really. As we said, also, like she did, unfortunately, by taking making that choice, obscure what is ultimately a love album. And like that is unfortunate on some level. I buy what you're saying in terms of like that was the only way for her to kind of like create a s- selling launch pad for like what this was going to be. We've joked on various past episodes of Pop Pantheon about how reputation is my favorite Taylor Swift album. Yeah. I want to come clean and say I'm not sure that that's 100% the case yeah. really in reality. It's definitely up there. Yeah. But I do think with the power of hindsight, it is my favorite of the three pop albums i think that yes, absolutely a thousand percent you agree with me on that i honestly would put reputation at my number two i think so too with red being number one red number one yeah i mean i okay. think like right the thing on. with both red and reputation and why they work so well why i love them so much. and i think this is why like i've grown to really love lover in a way too in a mm-hmm. way that i was surprised by mm-hmm. over the years mm-hmm. is that there is a messiness to those albums that taylor very rarely has let herself mm. embrace and right, I think okay. Red's messiness, and she's talked about the messiness of Red, which is just like, she's like caught between the two worlds as she's trying to explore. Right. And like, right. in hindsight, that album doesn't, it's not cohesive at all. There's no, like, it doesn't work entirely well as all these songs on one album, but those songs are all so great mm-hmm. that you can look past the fact that they're all lobbed together on this one project because they're literally some of the best songwriting she's ever, like anyone's done in like yeah. recent pop history. Like it's just like right. really, really brilliant. But it's messy. It's it's like all over the place. Like she's trying yeah. a lot of different things at once. It should not work as well as it does. Same with mm-hmm. Reputation. Reputation mm-hmm. is messy. The approach to it is messy. The like bait and switch is messy. Like she's not always super, I, I don't find her convincing when she's trying to be like evil Taylor or like dark Taylor <laughs> like the most evil song she's ever released is mastermind because that song is crazy but right. like you know it's like it's a real but that's believable because she is that. right that's why it's the most evil song she's ever released and like yeah, she's yeah. not convincing when she's trying to be so goth and dark and like moody all the yeah. time mm-hmm. but like I think that attempt at it and that combining that doing this dark sound with these lyrics that are so in love and happy i love that combination i think it is so messy i think the rollout was messy i think everything about it was kind of messy but it works so well it was fun as i said earlier to watch her really get outside of her comfort zone and Mm -hmm. that's this album to me like this album was exciting because it was like shit like she is stretching her talent in ways that like i couldn't have ever pictured would work and she's making this work like that is fucking impressive and I don't necessarily feel like she's ever really since then done that in the same way for me as much as I loved Lover and I really liked Folklore and I'm not kind of neither here nor there there and evermore and as I said I'm struggling with Midnight's I want more of that from Taylor moving forward like I want to feel more like whoa like how did she make that work for her like you know how did she figure that out and I just feel like some of her subsequent albums have lacked a little bit of that thrill for me and that's Mm -hmm. part of what I'm struggling a little bit with with on Midnight's is that it's funny because I think like some of the things that she was positing about herself or like the way she was positioning reputations is similar to how she's positioned Midnight's like it's darker toned she's like kind of getting into like a murkier soupier sound it's internal it's supposed to have a little bit of like a edge to it in a way mm-hmm. that some of her music has it and it's so funny to watch how like well everybody's ready to receive Midnight's in a way that they were like not ready to receive Reputation which like speaks to everything that you so beautifully laid out before, yeah. you know about what was going on in the greater Taylor Swift universe at that time yeah. but it's been interesting to me watching people like dive all over Midnight's in the way that they were not willing to give Reputation the same sort of grace I guess my final two questions are do you think Reputation's reputation has shifted over yes. the last five years like do you think people have come around on it yeah i think there's definitely been a shift in it and i feel like it's again so fascinating because the reviews were just like so ready for this to be like such a bad album and like made it a bad album in that way and like i feel like there's craig jenkins was like someone who's also on my team you know like me and him Uh were like we were like this is a good album and y'all are gonna change your minds in like a few years time craig generally has good opinions yeah like craig is craig knows like craig always like he always knows and so i was glad i had him on on my side because we were in the trenches in mm-hmm. 2017 mm-hmm. <laughs> and like mm-hmm. yeah i think Fighting just like 
you know, I definitely have seen and had conversations with people where it's like, they're like, yeah, I've returned to that album and I like it a lot more than I did when it came out. And like, I think once you take the context out of it or like the immediate sort of history, it becomes a much different and better album. Yeah. And this has been a grower for a lot of people in the way that, like I said, like Lover was sort of that for me. Like, I think like mm-hmm. that this was a, an album for everyone who just kind of like did not immediately get the vision and then like mm-hmm. once they listened to and they understood maybe lover probably put it into perspective of like the love songs and everything and that like mm-hmm. you know that she's like writing from a different perspective now i know yeah i i think it just it's become a lot clearer to people what happened i i think you're right i also think that getting out of 2017 because i think some of the pro- people problem people had with this was that they saw taylor as like floating above the sort of trendiness sort of like floating above trendy mm-hmm. pop things and i think one of the things people also struggled with in addition to sort of like how the content might have been framed was the idea that she was like leaning too heavily into what music at that moment sounded like and i think now that we are out of that moment I think maybe we're more free to just enjoy the music as it is instead of like feeling as though maybe it's trendy. I think that could be something that has helped the album. I would normally wrap this up by asking you to name an underrated song from Reputation that we haven't spoken about yet, but we have spoken about nearly every song on the album. Yeah. But there's one I want to bring (laughs) up, Bound 2 of Reputation, which is... New Year's Day, which I is mean, the one New Year's song, Day. Yeah. the one song on here that ditches the entire aesthetic palette of this record, but deals with the intimate details of like love and romance in the ways that only the best Taylor Swift songs can. Yeah, and so I'm I'm gonna suggest that we go out on New Year's Day. What do you think about that? I mean, it's one of her best love songs, and I think just absolutely gorgeous. I love a New mm-hmm. Year's song. Like Me it's just too. so, and you know, everyone's always like you know, the fans read into everything too much, but they're always like, there's a, a song on the album that like predicts the next album. Yes. Right. And I'm like, I don't I don't think that's what's happening. But if you, there was one, I feel like New Year's Day is like the very good prediction of the better lover songs of what comes next. And of Midnight's because the lyric goes, I want your midnight. Exactly. Baby, but yeah. I'll be cleaning up bottles with you. I mean, New Year's, Year's Day. Day kind of predicted the next four Taylor yeah, albums. You know, it's I kind agree. of that line to like the song lover to like a moment like Daylight, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and Cornelia Street. Then you get like the drip back Taylor for Folklore and Evermore. And then the Midnight's conceit that goes across the new album. So maybe yeah. that song was meant to be the doorway to everything. Okay, so let's go out on New Year's Day. Brittany Spanos, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Always. Always. (laughs) Don't read the last page, but I stay. When it's hard or it's wrong or we're making mistakes, I want your midnights. But I'll be cleaning up bottles with you on New Year's Day.